It was the idea that you can apply economic thinking to a problem that is supercharged with politics, culture, and context, that you can reveal structure and look, sort of provide a guide of what details in the context to look for. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Kickback, the anti-corruption podcast. My name is Dan Huff, Professor of Politics at the University of Sussex in the UK. This week, really pleased to be talking to one of the one of the eminence greeds of corruption analysis, someone who I, I think more or less everybody who's ever analysed corruption at university will have come across. And, you know, um, I'm particularly keen not just to talk about the history of this particular academic's work, but also about the future and what it, what he's doing now. So welcome on board, Bob Clickgard from Clement Graduate University. How are you? I'm good. Thanks very much, Dan. Great that you could join us. I, I know that you're a busy man and you've you've been you, you've been in Bhutan recently, and I'm keen to talk to you about some of the work you've been doing there. But I think it makes sense to start at the very beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about how you found your way originally uh, into analysing corruption? How did corruption come on your radar? When I first got my PhD, I wanted to go someplace that was very poor before I settled into a too comfortable an academic life. South Asian ended up being a visiting professor at the University of Karachi. And I was there for over two years. And we worked on all kinds of great problems, applying the new institutional economics to real issues like fertilizer distribution and the collapse of the shrimp industry and taxes in Karachi. And I kept hearing more and more from colleagues there about how important corruption was as a break on Pakistan's development. And I couldn't get my head around it quite. I thought maybe it was a little bit of an excuse. So I went from there back to Harvard, to the Harvard Kennedy School. And I started looking at what the academic literature said about corruption and tried to do case studies, tried to find examples where corruption had been reduced, although never eliminated, and then put those two together into the book that you see called Controlling Corruption. And so that's how it began. In, in the world, listening to people complain about it, who were Pakistanis, that's how it began. Yeah, so so real world experience of it almost because um, you know I spent a little bit of time in Pakistan and and people do talk to you about it, don't they? That it was an issue that was very much on on people's minds when I was there, and you know obviously a few years after you. Um, so how did that lead up lead up to the to the the famous equation that you're always associated with? When did that come to you, and and how did you how did you realize that that might be the way to go? It was more the idea that you can apply economic thinking to a problem that is supercharged with politics culture and context, that you can reveal structure and look, sort of provide a guide of what details in the context to look for. So very much similar to game theory or other tools of economics, where you apply them to real situations and they help you understand commonalities such as collective action problems, which are at the heart of systemic corruption and many other things. And so once once you see that the principal agent client model, which has been applied to business organizations in the US and elsewhere, also applies to this situation, once you recognize that you can actually look at systems rather than corrupt individuals, and you can begin to think about when systems would be most vulnerable to corruption, and there would be structures of decision-making that would be most vulnerable. And that's where that particular formula came out of that idea of how could you use a simple idea to understand where a system might be vulnerable? And the answer is where one person or a group of people has a lot of discretion over a decision and there's no accountability for what they do. Some people resist. There's always variation. Uh, and yet that's a place where if you're going to make a bet on the long term, you better think that might be a place we'll have trouble. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I very much understand where you're, you're coming from there. And since you, you you published that that famous book in 1988, wh- where have you gone then? I mean, your your, your interests uh, have broadened, I guess, somewhat to look at other things, right? Well, my first book was on another problem that emerged in that part of the world, which was about elitism right. and the idea that there are systemics ruling out of rural peoples, people from different language groups, indigenous peoples, and so forth, in the so-called meritocracies of higher education and elsewhere in civil service. So I started looking at that problem there also. Then I came back to Harvard and I was head of the admissions committee, faculty head of the admissions committee at the Harvard Kennedy School. And I was working halftime with the president of Harvard who said, you know, we got this problem all over the place at Harvard. We're using these narrow academic criteria. He said, I'm guilty because I was the dean of the law school. All we did was look at LSAT scores and grades. Can you help us do better where we can include leadership, character, so forth? So uh, that's when I wrote a book called Choosing Elites. And then there was a developing country version of that called Elitism and Meritocracy in Developing Countries, which looks down at China, has a great case about what China did to get rid of its old system and then bring it back, as well as Philippines, Indonesia, Pakistan, and some other countries where this challenge of how do you manage the trade-offs between elitism and meritocracy. And there's still a problem we have today. So those were the ones that I was working on even before the corruption. But I think you see the similarity. You've got systems there which are leading to outcomes which are a little bit contrary to what you hope, <laughs> to say the least. And then, But you can't just say, let's get rid of that system. You have to think about what are the balancing acts and how can we help real decision makers in context make those trade-offs together? So that's, uh, that's where that came from. And then later in the early 90s, after I'd been over in Equatorial Guinea, another piece of field work, which was to try to get me to understand Africa, I learned French, and then started studying what French people know about development and found all the French anthropologists and began to think to myself, what do anthropologists know that policy types don't know and economists don't know? And I found these two cultures there, very proud cultures resisting each other's uh, insights. And so that's the subject of another book uh, came out quite a bit later called The Corruption and Development, sorry, The Culture and Development Manifesto. I was going to ask you about that. I mean, I, I the two things that occurred to me first of all it's a breath of fresh air to find somebody with with in essence an economics background then going off and, and, and hunting with the anthropologists because of course many of us stay in our disciplinary um silos and it, it's nice and easy to do that so uh, there's definitely a lesson to be learned about um you know being prepared to go out out of your comfort zone to find out something interesting the, the second point I, I was finding the concept of meritocracy quite interesting bob because the one problem i see with meritocracy is, is not always about giving those who don't get opportunities, more opportunities. It is a problem, but it's more about what, what do you do about the, the guys, the kids, if we're talking about education, who are not particularly bright, but who are who are in positions where they will succeed. You know, I, I live in Berkshire, very close to a place called Eaton. And uh, there's a lot of people go to Eaton school who do very well in life. Half of them seem to end up running my country. But I'm not sure they are necessarily the smartest, the smartest of people. But of course, they, they make progress because in a meritocracy, you don't have people who are not as capable going down. Those guys have their positions in the system through their through their link, linkages that that enable them to do well. So um, g- given that, given the protectionist instincts of many in meritocracies, we've got a problem, haven't we? How do you deal with that sort of issue? That's the fundamental problem. Max Weber identified that same problem long ago. He said, on the one hand, meritocracy is something which looks like an open society, but creates a privileged caste. And the the, the tension between those two is huge. 
So one way to begin is to say, suppose we had God's perfect information about all possible candidates for all possible higher education positions, and we knew what was the value added of each kind of education to their trajectories based, value added in terms of what? Maybe in terms of their life goals, maybe in terms of social. But imagine you had perfect information, what would you do? And what kind of system would you have there? And that's that's a good way to begin. And one of the chapters of uh, Choosing Elites goes through that exercise. And uh, more recently in the real world, Singapore, one of the pioneers of meritocracy, I believe right. it was yep. responsible for their emergence in the 60s and 70s as a powerhouse in a multi-ethnic society. Their prime minister has been increasingly concerned about the competitive effects of this, the dysfunctional competition in one dimension, and the ruling out of other kinds of excellence as being not cherished in the society. And so working with them a little bit in the 2010, 2017 in that area, the idea of meritocracies is one that's important. Uh -huh. where there are many channels to success and there's many definitions of success. And, you know, in Britain, you have it. Here in America, we have it. You've got people who could care less about being on Wall Street, who love to have their particular niches of excellence and passion. And so getting a society which cherishes that, supports that, as, for example, in Denmark, where you can you can go into a career uh, and then decide when you're 26, I don't like that. I think I'll do interior design and they'll pay for it. So that's an, a, a way to open up uh, people to have free choice and give them a lot more chance to excel, to have many paths, not the one where you're 15 and you're eliminated from the merit system, but have many different channels toward many kinds of success. Easier said than done, but that's the way I think we should think about it. Yeah, I very much see where you're coming from there, Bob. And I find these sorts of questions fascinating. And, and a concept that inevitably gets raised is one of culture, differences. And culture is one of those words, I think, in the world of corruption analysis that, that is tricky because people don't know how to define it. They don't know how to measure it. They, they don't really know where it begins and ends. Um, and it's it's often become something of a, a you know, a, a wet fish. Now, how would you get around some of the challenges of, you know, of making sense of corruption's relationship with cultures? Yeah. So just a quick 30 second preface. Every interesting concept in the social and behavioral sciences is contestable and really not visible. So corruption, okay. itself, yeah. as you've written in your book, Analyzing Corruption, who knows what that means? Development, of course, is famously debated up and down the street. And culture is another one of those things. When you put these things together in a stew, culture, corruption, you know, democracy, development, Fairness, yeah, freedom, you, end with, all you, you end up with something that can be dysfunctional, where you end up with people who have not been in the real world, who don't really care about action on the ground, but they can analyze 50 books and find six typologies for this and four frameworks for that. So these fields blossom. And I think you could find this in psychology, sociology, political science. So it's not just to do with the issues we're talking about. So the culture one is particularly important because as with corruption, moral condemnation lurks in the background and histories of domination lurk in the background. Corruption was and is systematized by people in power in some places. Culture was used as a weapon of colonization and put down, not only by international colonizers, but also domestically in the face of indigenous peoples. So given that history, understandably, scholars and citizens are reluctant to go there because they think it's a slippery slope from there to culturism, racism, who knows what, or from there to accusing people of being corrupt because that's the way they are. They're just those kinds of people. So that's in the background. And I believe that instinct, laudable though it is, has paralyzed good work 
bringing those things together. And what I try to do in the Culture and Development Manifesto is explain why that happened, why that breach happened, explain why this is such a difficult problem analytically, even if we had God's perfect information, very difficult to build the kind of model with the limited data we have that would be dynamic general equilibrium and figure it all out. That's not going to happen. But what we can do is look for examples where people deconstructed cultural narratives and it led to better conversations. We can look for examples where anthropologists and others were on the ground helping people figure out better ways to manage common property resources or do better with rural credit systems or handle family planning programs with more cultural astuteness. Uh, so you have those, and there are plenty of examples around, but we don't tend to look for them. We tend to again sit back and say, wait, the whole anti-corruption enterprises is colonialist, or the, these people, you know, stop worried about anti-corruption. It's all connected with deeper, this is one of your points, deeper dimensions of governance. And if you don't understand those connections, you anti-corruption policies will be like chipping off tops of, of a wooden box that were the, what's inside the box is not getting attention. So all those things are prefatory marks, which we should do in the first two weeks of the course, metaphorically. Yep. And then we should get down to examples. Okay, so where do we find something that's hopeful? Where have we seen things that actually made a difference on the ground where culture was taken into account and it worked? And so that's what I try to provide in this book. Uh, lots of good examples where you know, taking culture seriously pays off in terms of people's own benefits on the ground. Yeah, I mean, I, I, my colleague Robert Barrington always says there are actually more success stories out there than you realize. Um, it's very easy to say that everything's failed because, of course, Rome was never built in a day. And and it sounds like you're, you're, you're very much talking to the same sort of sets of thoughts. A country that I know that you know way more about than me and a country that is widely regarded as as, as, as making progress in terms of its anti-corruption thinking is, is Bhutan as we've mentioned earlier on. Now, could you say a little bit about the work that you've done there and, and, and the encouraging points that have come out of it? Yeah, briefly, Bhutan is a constitutional monarchy that was dragged into democracy by a, by the kings themselves, who said, we got to have democracy. And people said, we don't want democracy. There's a new there's a new movie just out called The Monk and the Gun about the 2006 elections, which will be coming soon to Britain. And it's really fun because it describes these kind of innocent people saying, we don't want, we don't need this. We don't need political argument. We don't need the corruption of campaigns. We, you know, we're doing fine here because they had generous uh, and non-corrupt rulers. However, as soon as you get uh, water and power as your major source of foreign exchange, where you have dams, you have all the infrastructure coming in there, you have road building as a major initiative. They had their first roads in the 1960s and their main highway, unquote, two lanes is probably the worst in the world. So, but But they have all these international companies, particularly from neighboring countries where the corruption ranking would be in the hundreds rather than 25 coming in with money and there's big infrastructure contracts and there's there's elections and so you have to sit back and say okay what do we know from other countries about that and we know those are risky and so they have a very good anti-corruption commission which has moved from complaints to prevention not just prevention but move from individuals to systems and trying to analyze how these things could be how you can get more transparency by asking citizens and private actors in a confidential way to identify what the systemic weaknesses are so that the government can take better action. Yeah, right. so in terms of moving forward, I mean, that, that 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 sounds like we've got some quite enlightened rulers 
they're making decisions that that won't necessarily be to everyone's satisfaction. If if other countries were looking at, at Bhutan, and what are the what are the three points that you would say that, that this is these are the key things that you might want to take yeah. away and apply in your own context? It's a good point because you know many many countries do not have this kind of political culture of trust. It's probably the most trusting country. You know they inoculated everybody against COVID. Uh, they ninety percent of the country got inoculated within two weeks. Wow. Of starting the campaign. You know, there's economists had an article which showed this graph going like this, and the rest of us kind of and one reason is because they have tremendous trust in their government and they have the religious leaders behind it too. So when you have that situation, you can't really say Philippines, Ethiopia, take a look. You can copy this because you yeah. really can't. It does give hope that you can see how certain kinds of systems could be analyzed in ways that would be applicable elsewhere. Just as for example, I know you've worked in Saudi Arabia. Their um, procurement rules are world class, I believe. And you could, a lot of other places can look at the procurement rules and say, okay, how do they do that? And yeah, what are they going to do with Neom? Who knows how that's going to work out in practice? But I think, you know, you have places like Indonesia trying to learn from Saudi Arabia because Indonesia is going to move their capital out of Jakarta. And that's going to be gigantic chances for mega corruption. And so trying to get ahead of that is part of the thing. And I know you've worked in China where I think the lesson from, from Bhutan in China would be, it's not just punitive. It's not just control and inspection. It's not just making the 93 million members of the Communist Party squirm and sweat with oversight and con control, as one high-level official told me in 2017. Instead, what we need to do is look inside China for examples of those five big areas they're most worried about. For example, where developers get involved with peasants' land and then government officials take the land and, and give it to the developers and the peasants are angry. And the Chinese Communist Party rightly worries that this could get out of hand. And so what you could do is you could say, so where around this country have we gone from good to great or from terrible to okay? And then bring in the management schools, bring in uh, Sussex, bring in other places to do one of your case studies there and find out how they did it and what they did and then share those stories around China as as bright spots to learn from. That's something we can do and, and something Bhutan is doing, trying to share the examples of success among other people from different regions of the country and different ministries. And I mean, that, that, that sounds, you know, eminently sensible to me. Well, why do you think this doesn't happen? Say it again. But why do you think this doesn't happen at the moment or doesn't happen enough? What I mean, are there simply too many veto players out there who, who, who it's not in their interests for better governance, for, for, for lessons to be learned from these success stories? What, what, what are the reasons that, that, that we don't see more of what sounds like intuitively sensible thinking, right? That's a good question. I don't know if I can answer that, except to say that I've been involved with many uh, new presidents, new ministers, new mayors who are definitely interested uh, and so we have to we have to show up with them, not by saying, you know, we need a 21 point program against corruption. We need the new national strategy beautifully bound. And we need all this. We need six new laws and we need a new code of conduct, seven pages written in Shakespearean English. We yep. don't need any of those things. We, what we need to do is take two or three things that you can make a difference on in the first six months that can show progress. They can start to get you out of the, the self-fulfilling prophecy of a self-reinforcing equilibrium of corruption. And I think those kinds of pieces of advice can be very useful on the ground. What's not so useful is if we get a guy who's been in power for five years, 
who is unfortunately completely compromised with the campaigning, if he's got a campaign. Uh, his whole party is compromised with fundraising for campaigns and their systemic influence peddling and corruption. It's very hard for that person to, uh, to step up and do something. Uh, so I think what we do, maybe what the answer is begin with countries have new presidents, new governors, new mayors, and uh, see if we can show them some examples from elsewhere. My little formula is this, give them data to show them where they stand compared to other places so that everybody, the public, private, nonprofit are on the same page to know this. We got a problem here. Second, bring an example in a part A, part B, kind of Harvard Business School style. Here's part A. Here's the problem they faced. What would you do? And make them work in tables to say what they would do. And they come back and say what they did. And then you have you show them what they actually did. Maybe have the the president or the governor or the prince or the whoever it was that did the reform in another country on Zoom with them, and talk answer questions about how they did it because contexts are always different. But sometimes just seeing an example is so inspiring that people get a lot of ideas they wouldn't have had elsewise. And then show them a simple framework of something where it's a, it's a collective action problem. It's not unusual. This is the same thing we see in other areas, or a principal agent problem. It's something we see elsewhere. Or some other kind of institutional economics issue where you see this, bring them something that's sort of a one-page Atul Gawande checklist for that help them work it through and reframe the problem away from it's our culture, it's our politics, it's an ethical issue, we need 100 years of education, oh my God, you know, whatever, and get them off that. And what I find is you give them the data, some example from elsewhere, and some kind of framework to help them rethink it, they come up with ideas that you and I would not have come up with. And they get inspired to, to try to solve the problem. And, and then you can help them in small ways, just say, don't try to do 12 things at once. Sometimes that's good advice. And I think in that sense, Dan, if we start with those kinds of countries with that kind of method, as opposed to what we tend to do in the international community right now, which is the technical assistance project to write the anti-corruption strategy, you know, as you've pointed out, not very useful, even in places like Germany may not be very useful. I, mean, I, I think it's basically bringing the real world back in, right? The real world gives you examples. It gives you examples of success and failure. Don't forget them. Theories are good. They do explain a lot. Data is brilliant, but the real world is what we're really thinking of. And I, I do think sometimes it's quite easy to forget that the real world with all its complexities is, is actually the focus of our concerns, right? Because that's the world that we, for better or worse, find ourselves living in. Last question from me, Bob. I'm always intrigued to know what people who've been, and don't take this the wrong way, people who've been around for quite a long time might advise those who are making their way. So if there was a young scholar who perhaps on their PhD journey or has just finished their PhD and is thinking about next steps and they're interested in, in thinking about analysing the world of corruption, anti-corruption, is there anything, any advice that you would give them? That's a good question. I think the, the training they get can help them see what this problem is like as opposed to seeing this as a sweet, generous problem, which is unique from every other kind of problem. Corruption has a lot of similarities, as I said, with other collective action problems. And if you have the kind of analytical training that helps you see, ah, this is really just like uh, over harvesting a forest, or this is really like overfishing, or it's really like changing the rules of the game somewhere. And how, what do we know about how to do that? And there are examples in business that are useful as well. So we need, I think we need that kind of flexible mentality. I know at, at Sussex, you're getting people interdisciplinary training, and I think that's important. I think, luckily for me, I was trained at Harvard's Kennedy School, which was very interdisciplinary. And I spent a lot of years at the RAND Corporation, which is the classic interdisciplinary applied anthropologists and mathematicians working together. You couldn't even do that at Harvard, but you, there you go. And there's examples like that here at 
our Claremont Graduate University, our focus is transdisciplinary. So we try to get people to think about problems across those flexibly. So that'd be one piece of advice. And the second one is be be attentive to data and ex- and also to examples. So it's easy to theorize, it's easy to get caught up in definitional debates, but pay attention to data. They're always imperfect. The concepts are always debatable. The measures are always partial, inexact, biased, but pay attention to that and see what you can see with patterns and what exceptions you can see to the rule. Once you do the regression, what are the ones that are up here and what might explain them that would be helpful to guide us to useful action? Sound like a load of sensible suggestions to me. Open-mindedness, interdisciplinarity, transdisciplinarity, and give yourself a chance to, to find things out that might be interesting, useful, and help improve the world that's out there. Bob, it's been fascinating talking to you. Very best of luck in your in your next steps. What, what are, the, are the next steps? What's the plan for the next sort of couple of years? Yes, well, so I just finished this thing on uh, public-private partnerships. It's an open access. Tell You could tell your students, oh, look up okay. bold, yeah. bold and Humble. And it's called um, How to Lead public-private citizen collaboration with five success stories. So it has case stories, case studies, plus some analytical material. So if you have students interested in that, and it's free, that's always the good thing. That's great, yeah. So I'm very interested right now in chat GPT and related tools. And I think they are transforming higher education as we speak. PhD qualifying exams have to be completely different. How I teach my students has to be, I have to empower them to use this tool and we bring it into the classroom. And in our research, it's going to be transformative also. So I'm on a couple of uh, international committees on that, and I'm busy proselytizing around the world about how to use these tools for uh, thinking harder, not to replace your thinking and not to be a search engine, but how to help you think better and harder. I'm interested in that because that, of course, is a positive narrative. And yet a lot of what we hear in the UK about chat GPT is very negative. We've got to stop X. We've got to prevent them doing Y. This is all about cheating in, in the classroom. But of course, there is a positive narrative too, which you just outlined there. Yeah. Yeah, good stuff, Bob. Um, very best of luck with that, and and we'll, we'll certainly uh, you know follow your progress as we always have. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll hopefully chat to you again sometime soon. Thanks very much. Thanks, thanks, Dad. Good luck with the cricket games. Thanks, right? Well, I'll need plenty of that the older I get. But uh, thanks very much. Much appreciated. Okay, bye bye.